0: hi there everybody and welcome to our award show award show we've got an award show welcome to the third annual butter with that extravagant awards extravaganza whatever calling <laughs> it this year
1: it's the first one to ever have uh, that theme though so there's uh and- there's something new
2: <laughs> and can we put that to music <laughs>
1: yeah we're gonna have to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, So welcome to, as I
0: mentioned, Butterworth That's uh, Awards Extravaganza. Um, As you probably know, we're a movies podcast from Philadelphia where friends come together. And tonight we are talking about our favorite picks from 2020. Uh, 2020 was a weird year, to put it mildly. Um, Not a whole lot of movies came out as, you know, compared to every single other year that movies have existed. (laughs) So we are mixing in some TV with our picks and, you know, I think this, in a good way, like challenged me to really think about. Okay, I've only watched a few things. What were some of my, you know, favorite parts from these, you know, few films that I did watch this year? Uh, but before we dive in, how's everybody doing today? For the record, this is the day where a right-wing mob <laughs> uh, stormed the Capitol building,
2: where terrorists and- stormed the Capitol yeah. building.
0: <laughs> yeah. terrorists uh, formed in a mob um yeah so but in good news the two democratic candidates won the georgia runoffs mm-hmm. so not a to- total loss of a
1: day
2: i know i feel bad that georgia got the spotlight stolen from them by True. these assholes mm-hmm.
1: well i saw that there's a bit of good news uh that's coming down the pike that's that in uh 2022 michael keaton is returning to the role of batman
2: hey <laughs> to save us all
1: just announced uh, today so I'm very, very excited to see what comes with that. I don't know if it's going to intersect at all with uh, Pattinson's deal. Mm. I think it may be a separate thing, but um, yeah, we'll see what happens.
0: I hope they make him like the Nick Fury of the new kind of whatever DC movie universe they're building.
1: Hmm.
2: Oh, is it like, what was the show? Batman Begins? No, what was yeah. the Batman Beyond?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I would be down with that, actually. I liked that show. Uh,
0: Batman Beyond and Batman the Animated Series just came on HBO Max
1: oh cool one. whoa nice
0: and the phantasm also I've, I've never i've never seen the animated movie from oh. the oh. animated series awesome well let's i guess just dive straight into our categories uh we have eight categories for you and we are starting with the first four beginning with best screenplay so would anybody like to take a crack first at what movie or tv show they thought had the best screenplay of 2020
3: um, okay, so best screenplay, um, it was a tough pick, but I went for The Personal History of David Copperfield uh, by Armando Iannucci. Um, so I was already a huge fan of Iannucci's scripts um, with their acerbic and dark comedic tones in movies, a movie like we talked about before, Death of Stalin, but in his most recent movie, Personal History, um, he manages to turn a Dickens novel, Thick and Dusty, into a really fun, fantastical, but still pretty incisive movie about creativity and imagination and um, sort of the ebbs and flows of life. Um, and like as much as I love stodgy BBC Dickens miniseries, uh, Ian proves that Dickens can be bright, fresh and a modern and funny Um adaptation and it is written so well and so funny and i strongly recommend
2: it looks so cute i really want to see it
0: you've heard great things and that's dev patel right
3: yes and dev patel is wonderful As I is it everyone. came out this year it's it like kind of, it's considered a 2020 movie even though yeah. some dates have it as a 2019 but most reviews that came out came out in 2020 so i'm yeah. considering it a 2020 movie and i think most people are as well
2: yeah it's kind
1: of like a 1917 scenario a little bit
2: right on that like on when cost. it came out yeah
1: Threshold, yeah but yeah no- i
2: think our review came out this year for it on our on cinema 76 so that checks mm-hmm. out
0: yeah a few movies i picked were like a festival in the fall and then it came out in like june or like august
2: yeah mm.
0: personal history of david copperfield anybody mm-hmm. else
1: for me, it was a bit of an unconventional pick. Uh, I'd normally gravitate more toward movies and television, um, especially now that there are so many TV shows that I have to catch up on. Um, but one that really, really, uh, really swayed me this year and uh, I thought was brilliantly written was uh, Doro Hidoro, which is a Netflix uh, property that's uh, an anime series based on a manga, um, a screenplay uh, by uh, Kyo uh, Hayashida and Harishi uh, Seko. Um, is really is really awesome because it it creates this whole elaborate world um that's kind of two juxtaposed and intersecting world one where there is magic and magicians or you know magicians who are kind of warriors in a sense working as pairs
3: warrior magicians <laughs> yeah
1: and like they occasionally come over to our world where they practice magic which causes like a lot of pollution and a lot of problems and we follow uh kaiman who is a man who uh, has no memory of why but his head has been transformed into a lizard head and he and his friend Nikaido try to investigate what magician uh, was responsible for it uh, by going into that world. We learned a lot about both. And it's also framed so expertly with uh, dual characters. Like, there's so many partners that are involved um, and explored in a way that's, like, aromantic. It's just very much, like, healthy trauma bonding and, like, helping each other and, like, uh, discovering more about each other. And they're, their, like, platonic but very uh, specific love for one another and even the villains are really charming so i thought it was just expertly written and really one of the more captivating stories that i've seen uh in a long time so i would recommend checking that out for sure and that Doro he doro by the way uh d-o-r-o-h-e-d-o-r-o uh which when translated loosely means mud sludge <laughs> i think it's so cool. that
2: reminds me oh sorry
0: i was gonna say i think it's cool how netflix has really made like tons of like really cool anime content like original anime content
1: for sure yeah
2: uh, Dave, I meant to tell you that I saw Akira for the first time this year,
1: <gasps> Ooh. which
2: was an, an experience.
1: <laughs> it sure is. God, I love Akira, though. I really
2: liked it, but oh my God, like even it was like maybe a month ago I saw it, and I don't even know if I could like really explain what I saw, like not even <laughs> being that divorced from it, so. But I, I really enjoyed it. After watching like stuff like Evangelion this year and everything, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm getting like some of these, like, pieces of, like, anime kind of parsed together for me, which was nice, so. Did it make
3: you want to buy a motorcycle?
2: Uh, (laughs) kind of, yeah, except I know I would be really bad at riding a motorcycle. (laughs) I would not look as cool as they do in that, like, opening scene. Yeah. So I decided to go with, um... I'm your woman, uh, which was written by Julia Hart and Jordan Horowitz. Uh, they're married. Jordan Horowitz produced La La Land. Um, I'm your woman is available on Amazon prime. Um, it, I know I mentioned this before, but it stars, uh, the woman from Miss Maisel, who I like always forget her name. Uh, when like, Rachel Brosnahan. I always forget her last name. Um, But yeah, like I talked about it a little bit. It's kind of like um, Goodfellas from the perspective of like the woman in the relationship and just like what happens when her life is upended because of like her husband's like goings on. Um, It's really, really interesting and engaging, but there are so many moments that are just like characters talking and delivering information or parts of their history that are like so beautiful and engaging. And I really love a film where... I feel entertained by just watching people talk because um, I think sometimes that's some of the best parts of movies for me is just watching people like react to each other. Um, there's this scene where she, like the Rachel Brosnahan's characters, had like a terrible night. She's a mess and she goes into a laundromat and it takes place in the 70s and there is only women at the laundromat because they're the only ones doing laundry. Um, and she just sits there and has a mental breakdown and then like, One woman like just like starts patting her like this old woman starts like patting her on the leg and then another woman brings like one of her blankets over and they just take care of her and it's just like beautiful moment of just like a female community that um i yeah i was like very moved by that but all of the whole film is like really great i definitely suggest checking it out
0: and you said that was on
1: prime Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it was like my number four for the
4: year i really loved it um So my pick for best screenplay is the back half of the second season of The Mandalorian. Um, Once Ahsoka comes in, the show just like takes off and every episode I felt was just a knockout. And I really, really loved the Dark Troopers. I, I love Moff Gideon. I think that he's awesome. And the whole lore behind the Darksaber is I just I just loved it. And what they did with that final episode. I I really appreciate it. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but that final episode, how it mirrors a scene in Rogue One, just uh, Chef's kisses. It's so so good.
2: Bill Burr's episode is like really like lodged in me. That was, that was yeah, a amazing. Great yeah. Episode. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Like
4: a, a character
0: who I didn't really care about at all in the first season, who then comes yeah. back and then has this like one of the best scenes in the entire series.
2: Yeah
1: so strange to see Bill Birds Star Wars. It freaks me out. It's so it's, funny. It's, it's pretty great, but it's, it's weird. It's so
3: funny. I didn't know who he was. And then, like, I guess I, like, came across some of his his stand-up, and I was like, oh, that's the guy from The Mandalorian. Yep. It's like, yeah, I had no context for who he was. Mm-hmm.
0: I forget who made this video, but somebody made a uh, SNL intro parody video both all the comedians who are in The Mandalorian saying, like, this oh, is, like, yeah. ultimate cast of, like, SNLs and The Mandalorian, like, in an alternate universe, And then it ended with Taika Waititi as IG-11, uh, as, like, the host of the...
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because um, Horatio Sands is in it. Mm-hmm. And I was just listening to him on... Um- uh, comedy bang bang um he was on it with ben schwartz which was like so hilarious but i never recognized him when that first episode when you just see like the blue fish guy garrett was like oh yeah that's horatio Sands." i was like like what how am i supposed to tell like he's just got like all this rubber shit on
0: <laughs> awesome great pick sam uh well like sam and dave i also picked a tv show for best free Play. and my pick was season four of big mouth uh, a Netflix oh, animated yeah. show. Uh, written, uh, season four is written by Nick Kroll, Andrew Lo- um, Goldberg, Jennifer Flackett, and Mark Levin. Uh, Big Mouth is always—it's one of my favorite shows on TV right now—and we were so excited for season four to come out this fall. And I think every season of the show has gotten better. And you know, it really handles all the side characters really well, uh, and really is such a great representation of what it's like to be in middle school, what it's like to go through puberty, what it's like to make best friends and lose best friends. Um, and it just has a stellar voice cast. Um, Jason Manizukas is one of my favorite comedians out there, and he is so funny as Jay. And him and Nick Kroll, um, he voices a ton of characters in the show, but he has a relationship with Lola, who is just, like, one of the funniest characters, uh, one of my favorite characters ever. And so season four, I think, was just such a knockout, and I can't wait to see what season five has in store. And they also recast one of the uh, biracial characters who is voiced by Jenny Slate, uh, recasted mm-hmm. her as one of the writers who was brought in for season five. um so the eleventh hour they sort of because Jenny Slade, a yeah, white comedian. um she actually said, "I don't you know feel comfortable voicing Missy anymore. I want to give this role to somebody who can better represent her vocally and you know who she is. And so it was cool to see you know a pretty big show make a huge change like that um, that I think was you know handled really well.
3: Cool is anybody and else One of the cool anything? things about television is like it's <laughs> studios and the and the writers. Are willing to open their show up to get better and to grow and to reconsider yeah. casting choices. A TV show can do that, and like a movie can't. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of a cool thing to see. Um, they should have yeah. done that with BoJack, but they didn't. Oh, BoJack!
0: Oh, BoJack! That end this year or was that end last year. BoJack Horseman. One day I'll finish that show. Right? Who knows. Um, Cool. So that was our picks for best screenplay. We're now going to dive into best use of music. Um, This is one of my favorite categories to think about. And would anybody like to?
3: Best use of music. um, Also kind of hard pick. I, I love like all scores and soundtracks and stuff I watch, but something that stood out to me was the score and the compositions in Pixar's soul um, the co- jazz compositions were written by John Batiste um, and the animators actually used his hand, like the movement of his hands on like playing the piano um, as models for the movement of the character Joe's hands. Um, and I thought the music he wrote so perfectly captured the exuberance of like a jazz club performance and also the kind of quiet contemplative moments of inspiration towards the end. Like, I won't spoil anything, whatever, as he, as the character is sitting back down uh, at his, as, at his uh, piano. And then the second half of the music was a score written by Trent, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails. And they kind of did like an electronic score uh, for the kind of, like, kind of bee-boops for the netherworld and kind of like consciousness of the other side or whatever, which I thought was a great match And um, I was reading a review with John Batiste and the reviewer was asking like how much sort of back and forth was there between him and Trent Reznor and Alex Ross. And he was like, they kind of worked separately at the beginning and then um, he, they like shared what they were thinking and slowly things sort of um, kind of coalesced as well. So I think it really communicated something beautiful um, in a movie that's about inspiration and music and, consciousness
0: and whatever. That's Uh, one I wanted to check out. Yeah. I haven't seen soul yet, but it's on my list.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I suppose uh, this is a good time for me to jump in. I picked the same thing. Um, I also went with soul for best music. Um, And Christine, yeah, you put it pretty expertly all, all the way through there. I mean, it's um, it's really impressive, really technical jazz performances uh, orchestrated by uh, John Batiste. Um, But Ones that, as you said, can become more, more like nuanced and contemplative to the point that they're almost ethereal, which uh, the, pretty well matched kind of like the more like existential treatises of the film. Uh, and it also uh, the work of Reznor and Ross uh, for the kind of fictional world uh, in which souls um, are kind of processed as a, an almost like existential way Station um, is pr- is pretty well framed by that. I, I think it enhances that world by making it so sort of like almost ambient, but with like a playful edge to it that feels like it's got some momentum. So um, yeah, all the way through, I thought all oh, that was uh, was pretty spectacular and really enhanced the movie, which is already a pretty beautiful film. Um, so yeah, best score for uh, for Soul for me too.
2: Yeah, I, I changed mine at the last minute. I was like so certain of it. Um, but I ended up going with uh, the score and soundtrack for Promising Young Woman, Uh, which is directed by um, Emerald uh, Fennel. Uh, And so without giving too too much away about the movie, because I feel like if you haven't seen it, you should kind of go and like, Blind enough, um, but it is kind of like a female revenge fantasy. There's a lot of like darkness to the movie, but all of the the movie all like looks kind of like a like bubble gum. Like it's all these like pastel like blues and pinks and stuff, and that's really enhanced by the music of the film, which is mostly like pop hits. Um, so there's a lot of like club music, and then there's um, this amazing um, rendition of "It's Raining Men." Um, But then there's a scene with um, the main characters and they're in a drugstore and they start singing along to um, The Stars Are Blind by Paris Hilton, if anyone remembers that hit from Back in the Day. And it was like such a fucking throwback and it's so funny for like the scene. Cause it's like Bo Burnham is like one of the main characters and he's just like such a good, like physical comedian. And so watching him also like sing along to Paris Heldon is really funny. Um, but really like the most fucking beautiful part of this movie is um, Anthony Willis does a like um, orchestral version of Britney Spears toxic. Uh, at one of like the key points of the film and it just like it's so good like the violin yeah there's something like very like violent about the way it sounds and like with what's about to go down and it's like (laughs) amazing yeah so good
3: I watched an interview actually with her and Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham and she was like I sent Carrie a playlist to get her into character and Carrie Mulligan was like Toxic was on it twice (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I guess I
4: really
2: have to embody that song. It feels it for sure. I really liked that movie. Yeah. Um,
4: I, okay. So I want to preface all my further picks by saying I basically watched nothing this year. (laughs) It was mostly just true crime documentaries or I don't even know. So I'm picking from a very, very small list. However, um, my pick for best used to mu- use of music or sound is Birds of Prey, specifically for the end fight scene that uses Barracuda, and it's all the women fighting, and, you know, the one part where they stop fighting be like, oh, do you have a hair tie, blah, blah, blah. I loved that so much. It was so rad, and I've always said, okay, so... um something that our job had us do once was pick a walk-up song and my walk-up song was Barracuda so I I really deeply related to it it was so good
2: I just saw that for the first time a couple weeks ago and I loved that movie but like when we were talking about best use of sound Garrett and I were like I don't know Birds of Prey is a really good pick like that soundtrack is awesome especially with all the fight scenes yeah I'm so glad oh
0: that's such a good Sam. Uh, for my pick, I went with something that's already been mentioned, and that is, for my best use of music, The Mandalorian, um, composed by Ludwig Göransson, a Swedish composer. Um, specifically season two, I mean, season one also had really great music, but I feel like season two, it melded so perfectly with like the John Williams style, but making it something more modern. Um, I love especially the Dark Trooper theme, that was in the last episode, um, and then using a, not to spoil anything, but using a very familiar theme when a very important character comes in at the end and the way that he's able to use kind of like past and present Star Wars music to make something of his own while also creating this very distinct Western-feeling Mandalorian music. Um, one of my favorite discoveries of 2020 was this uh, Spotify, ar- this artist called um, Closed on Sundays, and he makes lo-fi um, renditions of songs, and he made he's, he has an amazing Star Wars playlist and his Mandalorian lo-fi um Ooh. condition is absolutely amazing. Um so yeah, for me Mandalorian is the best use of sound in 2020.
3: Interviews with him in his studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. There's <laughs> just like he's just I mean he has this like amazing studio with like a bunch of stuff but he was talking about how he came up with the the Mandalorian's yeah. theme and he's like, I just bought, I just ordered some recorders off the internet and he pulls out just like a school recorder and starts playing. And it's like, Oh, I know okay. he's a genius, but like, I was like, Oh, so that's all it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's just that simple little thing. Yeah. It's great. My cousin told me this sounds ex- if you were to play stairway to heaven on the recorder, it sounds exactly <laughs> like the beginning part um of the mandalorian theme cool so that was best use of music let's jump into best cinematography uh christine who do you have as your pick for the best film tv show best cinematography of 2020
3: so the mine was a late night pick um considering i just watched this last night <laughs> But uh, mine is going for, and I'm pulling it up right here. Okay, cinematography is Wukas. Uh, I think it's pronounced Wukas Zal, uh, who shot, I'm thinking of Ending Things. Um, and the movie is a wild ride through Charlie Kaufman's brain. But I think the, the element that really grounds the movie is the visual work of Zal. Uh, he had a tough job. Half of the movie is in a car uh, with the two main characters uh, just talking to one another with lots of real or really fake-ass snow, I'm not sure which, but... Um, and he figured out a great way of how to make, a, like, a bunch of shots through car glass and through blowing snow feel extremely tied to the main character's constantly shifting dialogue and kind of, like, psychological modes. Um, and then the other settings are like within a house and then within a school. And those are shot beautifully. There's some dance sequences at the end that are shot so beautifully. um, some beautiful like dance one shots in like a corridor. Um, and I looked this guy up and it turns out he was the cinematographer for Cold War, which was Poland's submission on uh, 2018 for uh, the Academy Awards, which I love. It was beautiful. So he knows snow. He really knows how to <laughs> shoot snow. So that's that's my pick.
0: Do you remember our old question? for This was like two years ago. Was the snow real?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many questions. I'm, <laughs> I have my theories scene to scene what's real snow and what's fake snow. But he had to shoot through both of it.
0: I sometimes think about, Christine, your pick of Snow Day for that theme. And about how the snow was used from what a sewage treatment plant or something they like got the water from.
3: I think Dave, you found Dave found that uh factoid that it was like like garbage snow or something.
1: It's <laughs> it kind of just yeah, it was like used. It, it creates water out of like waste, more or less. <sighs> Whenever I see so snow, to...
0: yeah, I always think of that that little nugget. <laughs> I mean,
3: if it's sustainable, I'm I'm all for it. You know.
1: <laughs> well. We're still uh, simpatico so far, Christine. I went with, uh, I'm thinking of many things as well. Um, there were some real contenders this year. I think um, the, the animation in Doro Hidoro, for example, returning to that was pretty spectacular. Um, there's some really, uh, really playful and really interesting stuff that comes into the fore in Mank, um, for sure. But um, there's something so, so striking and haunting about the way this movie is filmed because it, it creates this, really claustrophobic sense of atmosphere the entire time this depending on different settings it's still everything still feels so uh almost smothering and uh, so insular in a way that really ties into its themes of exploring solipsism and like the perversion of memory um so i i, I think uh, other movies were shot really well this year uh, and tv shows but i hadn't seen anything shot in a way that so perfectly kind of like suits the themes and ideas of it um and, and the cinematography being like kind of a guiding force of like metaphorical ethos and stuff and subtext. So it, um, it's really the one that stood out for me. And um, one that it, I, I, I have kind of like mixed feelings about that movie. I think it's pretty sharp. Um, but as I said before, definitely not for everybody. But um, the cinematography is something I think anybody can enjoy, albeit pretty claustrophobic and oppressive at times. But still beautiful. So kudos.
2: So. There were so many like really good looking movies that I saw this year. Uh, but I ultimately went with the TV show for this one. Um, so I picked uh Rob Hardy, who did who was the director of photography for Devs, uh, which is an FX show that stars Nick Offerman. Um, I think Allison Pill is the the other like main character in it. Um but it's um alex garland's show um it was a mini series that he did um alex garland who did annihilation as well as ex machina um which rob hardy shot both of those as well um and he also shot sam i was so excited to find this fact out he shot testament of youth (gasps) i was like oh my god that's crazy um but um I just I, Garland is so talented anyway. and this is like one of the best things I saw this year, TV or movie um, but specifically, some of the cinematography of it is just, fantastic there's this really haunting statue of a little girl um, that's huge that's in so many different shots of the of the tv show um and it feels like she's kind of looking down on characters at times um there's this whole scene in the forest where mm. all they have are these little like circular lights around a bunch of the trees and you just get this shot of nick offerman standing under one and it looks like it's a halo around his head um and then the facility that a lot of the main characters work in is also just like completely gorgeous um yeah i mean rob blake is super talented or rob hardy uh and i'm so happy that he and garland work together because i think garland is one of the best uh minds in sci-fi uh production now um so they're both very talented and that show looks fantastic
3: god i watched like half of that so far back in this year
2: so (laughs) good i Gary and I were like, can we watch this all in a day? Because I like need to know what happens.
3: <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I gotta jump back on that ship.
4: Um, so my choices, choices for best cinematography, I couldn't really decide which one I wanted to go with. Um I also picked a TV show, which is The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, I really loved it. It looked gorgeous, the 80s. It was so, so well done. Um, I also really like how they kind of hide in like ghosts and goblins and monsters in certain parts and how they do um, one scene that's like 20 minutes long, so I think that um, it's seamless. You you don't even notice these moments, but it's just shot so well. Um, and then the other choice is the devil all the time. I I can't decide if I like this movie or not. But the the movie is all about basically like backwoods, middle of nowhere America, and just how things go wrong with um, in the town and what I really enjoyed about it was that it's like a CD kind of movie and the cinematography made you feel that way. Like um, there's a scene where Robert Pattinson's like sweating profusely in the church. And like, I felt myself getting like anxious and sweaty because of just how like, well the scenery went with it and just how like close you get to him and everything. So I, I don't know if I can recommend this movie, but if you want to see the cinematography, check it out.
2: I just want to see our paths doing his crazy Southern
4: accent. I, it's, it's more the pitch of his voice. Interesting. That's really. Okay.
0: (laughs) So for my pick for best cinematography, I was kind of torn between a few different options. Um, But I think I'm going to go with my heart and pick uh, the movie Underwater with cinematography by Bojan Bazzelli. Um, who's a Montenegrin cinematographer. He's actually done a ton of stuff, uh, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, The Ring, Pete's Dragon, The Six Underground, which was a Netflix movie that came out last year. Um, It's not a great movie, but I think in terms of like shooting a movie that takes place all underwater, creature design comes into play too, the way that the lighting works. It was just a really effective, simple story. And I've realized I've seen like, Seven Kristen Stewart movies this year. <laughs> um, I watched all the, <laughs> the Twilight, year Kristen 5, Stewart, <laughs> Angeles, something else, and then Underground. So it was kind of like the year of Kristen Stewart um, for me. Uh, but I thought the cinematography and the look of underwater took what could be like a really terrible movie, elevating it into something that I would wholeheartedly recommend to somebody who's a fan of horror, spooky things, Lovecraftian themes. Uh, I dug it. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I could definitely see it in a couple of years, making it on like some cult classic lists and something that people yeah. go back to and enjoy. Because it came out in January and nobody saw it, because nobody sees January movies. Um, the so yeah, underwater looks
3: great.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It me. It was like my number ten for my best horror of the year uh, when I did my list in October. It's definitely like a B movie, but like it's all entertaining. Like the action starts immediately, and you're just in it. It's great.
0: And such a good also we talked about claustrophobia or we talked about it earlier, but yeah. also like the suits and the compression and like the pressure, like yeah, just such a good job of like the literal tension of like your body is going to collapse if something goes wrong and you're just going mm-hmm. to cool. So that was best cinematography. Uh, our fourth category is best discovery. Since 2020 was so weird, we thought we would add this category in as a movie or TV show or maybe both. Uh, Something that we've discovered this year, but not necessarily something that was made this year. So, Christine, you want to kick us off with your favorite discovery of 2020?
3: Uh, Yeah, so my favorite discovery of 2020 was um, seeing Tim Curry as the devil in this movie called Legend. (laughs) Yeah! This might be one of my new favorite (laughs) movies.
1: it's it's
3: so good and bad it's so exactly it's so good and bad Tori you (laughs) nailed it (laughs) I am fascinated by this movie for reasons I won't go into at length right now but one of the highlights is Tim Curry in full devil body costume with these massive horns and it was this costume that like weighed so much and that he like couldn't like there were some issues what but like it was so effective and his performance is just I mean he carries the movie basically but it is amazing it's a great I mean I highly recommend it you might hate it but it's worth just watching Tim Curry do his thing as the devil
2: we saw it on the big screen for the first time like a year or two ago at like exhumes fantasy event and it like after it ended garrett was like that was fine and i was like that was amazing <laughs> like what the fuck are you talking about yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. and there's so much like production drama like to read about like the set burned down which i'm not surprised because like <laughs> like the last third of the movie is just fire
2: it's a ridley <laughs> so, scott movie right Huh? It's a Ridley yeah. Scott movie, right? Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> wild.
3: Uh, yeah. So. Mm.
2: Great choice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. Well, uh, my 2020 discovery, and this one is, uh, is going to actually harken back, uh, Tori, to Chill and Kill Horror. Um, I hadn't seen it until this year. I, I was mistaken for another movie of the same name, uh, but House uh, also, Haosu, um, the 1977 Japanese horror comedy um, directed by uh, Obayashi. Uh, I, 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 I've seldom been turned on my head the way that it, that movie turns me on my head. It's one of the most yep. surreal experiences. It's so completely hilarious and like genuinely like completely horrifying at the same time. Um, so many really iconic images. Um, of course, Tori the piano. Uh and the cat, among other things. It's just like at every turn, I had no idea what to expect and was jaw-droppingly, like grinningly satisfied every time. Um, so it's just such a ride and such an experience. And I would recommend uh absolutely checking that out if you have the chance. It's on Criterion right now. Um, but otherwise it takes a little bit of digging. So um, so look up Hausu from 77 because it's uh one of the more wild rides you can take in my experience. And I can't believe that I was 33 when I first saw that movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's still on HBO Max, so it's super accessible.
1: Oh, nice. Good.
2: There's some good, creepy, like, uh, Japanese horror on HBO Max for whatever reason, whatever collection they have access to. They got some, like, really good stuff. Um, Cool so yeah I was I had trouble with this so I just um we just did like our favorite discoveries for Cinema 76 so I had like a top 15 of movies that I picked from um which included things that some of you guys had uh turned me on to like Moonlight and of course Sam Over the Top made my list because life will never be the same after seeing Over the Top um And there was one director who I wanted to put multiple movies on because we watched a bunch of his stuff this year. And I felt like I needed to just pick one thing of his. But uh, my favorite discovery of the year was David Lynch himself. Um, So I had watched David Lynch before. I'd seen like the first two seasons of Twin Peaks among some other stuff. Um, But he's such a weird director. And some of his stuff doesn't feel like super accessible. And so I don't think it was until we... um, this year we watched um, Wild at Heart, uh, which I loved. It was so good. And, like, there was something, like, really sad but really beautiful and, like, happy about it. And it just, like, made me feel so many things. And then Garrett uh, and I watched the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, which is now one of my favorite movies ever that was so good it you know actually gets to tell the story of laura palmer the dead girl who like usually doesn't get to speak in a lot of storylines so that was like very like meaningful to me um we watched season three which was really great and then we also watched uh mulholland drive which i had never seen so um i really just discovered like it felt like when i discovered cronenberg a few years ago where i just like discovered a director who just I loved the way, like, my brain felt after I watched some of their stuff and, like, what I latched on to. Um, I'm currently reading um, David Lynch's book called Catching the Big Fish, which is on transcendental meditation. Um, I've read that book. Yeah, it's very nice and, like, relaxing to read. And it, you know, was a nice reminder that as a very anxious person, meditation helps me and I should try to do it more often. <laughs> Um, But he has a line in the book that I read yesterday that just said, uh, people sometimes say they have trouble understanding a film, but I think they understand much more than they realize because we're all blessed with intuition. We really have the gift of intuiting things, Um, which was so beautiful. And that's really what I like, really what stands out to me. It's not like what I dissect from his work at the end, but it's just like how I feel after um, and yeah, there's something very charming about Lynch that I just have fallen in love with. So that's my favorite discovery of the year.
1: Nice. I tend to agree too, because especially like I feel like if you were to have a conversation about him, about it, what one of his films is about, he'd just be like, cheese and crackers, you didn't get it. Well, don't yep. worry about it.
2: <laughs> I was reading his book and he had some line where he's like, You might be saying yourself like Jiminy Cricket. And I was like, Who's no <laughs> saying that to themselves? <laughs> Yeah. He's somehow an adorable man who creates the weirdest, sometimes darkest shit I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So, uh, my best discovery this year is a show called Grantchester. I think I've talked about it before. Um, it is a BBC show that I watch on PBS and I actually started to donate to WHYY so I could get access (laughs) to the fifth season. And, you know, I'm glad to donate to WHYY. Um, it is a kind of mystery whodunit show, and it's a vicar and a detective. Um, what could be better? Also, it's a period piece. It takes place in the 50s, uh, maybe like late 40s, 50s. It's uh, another chef's kiss. It's it's so good. Um, and... There, I think that there's something for everybody. And what I think is most interesting is that the lead actor for the first three seasons decided to leave and a new lead came in and somehow it got better, which is not usually what happens. So I, I can't wait to the next season.
3: I feel like we talked about this on another episode. I'm you. so team whatever the first figure's name
4: was. I know, Uh Sydney. <laughs> I yeah yeah I love that show <laughs> That's so
0: good um so I'll wrap up best discovery this was kind of a hard one because I feel like I've watched a lot of stuff this year um but I think the movie uncut gems Adam Sandler's movie last year has really stuck with me um that movie's just a wild ride and I really want to watch other work that the softy brothers have done good times is on Netflix which I haven't watched yet but I want to it's good um I just have to prepare myself for it. But Uncut Gems really surprised me, and I really feel like it was not overhyped for me. Um, like, going in, I just truly really did not know what to expect. And Adam uh, Adam Sandler delivers what I think was one of the best performances of last year in that role. And has, like, the scope of, like, an epic, like, Greek tragedy. Is kind of how I felt about it once it ended. Uh, and the scene at the end when the guys are kind of, like, locked in the in-between room at the jewelry store, and he's watching the Celtics game. And the ladies go into the casino. Like the, that whole movie is just so well done. Uh, Kevin Garnett, NBA player, delivers an amazing, great performance, which you yeah. would not really expect from an athlete. Um, so I think my favorite discovery, movie wise, was probably Uncut Gems. I'm really glad I watched that this year, and I wish I wish I watched it last year because it probably would have made the award show last year. <laughs> well, let's get started with uh, category number five, uh, Christine. What was your favorite performance of 2020?
3: Uh, so my favorite performance of 2020 was Michaela Cole in I May Destroy You. Uh, oh, it. big that. recommend for this show. Um, and I was just blown away by Michaela Cole's performance. Uh, and I, I found a quote of a review I really loved from Vulture uh, by Angelica Jade Bastion. And she writes... The show operates on multiple levels as a love letter to the power of friendship, as an exploration of the slipperiness of memory and how it informs identity and as a consideration of the writing life. But what I keep coming back to when I think of I May Destroy You is Cole's performance. She's wild, charismatic, yearning, and able to shift emotional states on a dime. I was taken aback by the clarity of her emotion the way a small shift in her manner of a faraway glance could reveal the fraught emotional reality of Arabella's situation. Um, So I think Angelica's review really encapsulated uh, the brilliance of Cole's performance um, and the character Arabella's situation, which is the main character um, basically recovering and really dealing with uh, sexual assault and Um, the trauma, uh, the lasting trauma from that. And so, yeah, I think from Cole's performance as subtle shifts in facial expressions to hilariously theatrical movements and physical comedy, I think that her performance is like constantly subverting expectations of uh, how the character will respond to different situations. Uh, uh, And so, yeah, I was just really, really blown away also, aside from watching the show, which I really recommend, um, Michaela Cole's lecture uh, for Edinburgh TV that she did in twenty eighteen is a must watch too, where she talks about her life, her creative vision, and kind of how she uh, came to write, uh, become a writer uh, and a storyteller. And she, yeah, she's just brilliant. So that's my big recommend. I've never heard of that. That sounds cool. I've it's, heard uh, really good. on HBO. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of um, memory and identity, yeah, I, I, I'm i going to go back again to um, I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, Jesse Buckley, um, I think, really gave a, a pretty tremendous performance that is upon like first watch, I think, probably seemingly inconsistent and incomplete. But those factors are really important once you consider the framing device of the film, whose whose interpretations or memories of th- certain things are and so on. Um, so, like, it, it's almost like a role that uh, that I've seen mishandled in other movies. Like, without spoiling anything, it reminds me of movies like Joker or something like that. Uh, but instead, it's actually a, a really substantive review of the frailness of accurately remembering someone's character after being removed for so long. Um, and I think she, through her kind of like shift occasionally shifting accents or mannerisms uh in a way that feel initially inexplicable really kind of settle in once you take into effect uh that that's the intention and that's kind of where her role is coming from i don't i don't really want to spoil any of that uh too much but it's a really interesting version of something i've seen mishandled in other films um handled not only really well because it's well written but expertly acted um by her especially as as far as navigating those nuance with intentional inconsistency so uh, i'd have to give it to her this year
2: so i changed my mind and i'm going with one person who i saw two of their movies this year that made my like top 10 of the year um so i'm going with elizabeth moss uh both for the invisible man and for shirley um invisible man was one of the first movies i saw this And one of the few I saw in theaters and it was such a good theatrical experience, but, um, so much of that film works because she is so good in it. And she's, you know, portraying this character who has been in like (sighs) an abusive relationship for a really long time. Um, and I know that like, um, She and the director, like, did a lot of research to make sure they handled that well, and you really do feel that in her performance, um, which just makes the end of that movie, like, so much sweeter. Um, That movie, like, really rocks, and she's so good in it. The opening scene where she's, like, trying to escape from the house of her abuser is one of the, like, scariest scenes I have seen ever, Um, definitely this year um, and re-watching it like that fear still resonated a lot um and then she plays uh shirley jackson and shirley um which um i had read some shirley jackson like in school but she was never like um you know one of the people like one of the writers i like really um wanted to seek out um and after watching masa's performance I read a lot of Shirley Jackson this year, which was really awesome, which was, like, another really great discovery. Um, But she's so much fun in this, and she's, like, kind of evil in it, too. And um, she and the actor who plays her husband um, just really bounce off each other really well uh, in this very dysfunctional, unhealthy relationship that they're in. Um, Yeah, Moss, like, had a really great year. Um, So I was excited to see two of these movies.
4: She was also in The Kitchen, (laughs) I think came out this year what was it um the kitchen oh i think that's the
2: movie you were thinking of connor earlier yeah Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm. yep career just keeps just ascending i'm so proud of her
2: she's so great every time i see her like uh stills of like her and mad men i'm like oh my god she was such a little baby and now she's like grown into this like like an amazing actress
4: yeah
0: she was so good in us, also last year.
4: Yeah, so fun. Um, okay, so my awards—I'm—I'm I'm splitting it again um, because I had to. So the first—it's real that I'm awarding this to him, but you know, take it with a grain of salt. So uh, Chris Evans did Defending Jacob this year and I thought it was so good. I was so proud of him. And it's a good show. Uh, It changes the book ending a little bit. And every episode you were like, God, should we be defending Jacob? Should we not be? And I just think that he did a really good job. Um, It wasn't his first time being like a father- a father or a father figure, but, um, I think that he did it really well. Um, and then what I would say I really give the award to is Sasha Baron Cohen for the trial of the Chicago seven. I really loved that movie a lot. And I was really surprised by his performance. It was so good and so funny, but like right where it should be and my mom told me about this movie and she was like it's something that i lived through you should watch it and you know she didn't say it like this but she's like you know that borat asshole he was really good <laughs> and so he was <laughs> he was
2: everything about that is so mom yeah
3: i think I wild remember. that he had such two opposite movies well i guess Political movies, but like tonally two way, way
0: opposite movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't, I need to watch the trial of Chicago Seven.
4: It's really good. Eddie Redmayne is in it, and uh, I didn't realize it until like halfway through, and I was like, oh my God, that's been Eddie Redmayne the whole time. He's a weird actor, man. Yeah.
0: So uh, for my pick, Tori, you took exactly what I was going to pick also Elizabeth Moss in the Invisible Man and in Shirley. Um, The Invisible Man was also, I think it was the second to last movie I saw in theaters. Um, And so I've watched that twice now. Uh, Shirley is a movie I watched at the beginning of the summer, right when it came out. Um, Probably because you texted the group and then I watched it like that weekend. Um, And that's performance in Shirley that has really stuck with me for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, Especially her relationship with the student, a student or assistant teacher that she like takes on. And that like goes home, like that's a super like fucked up relationship in that house and i think she expertly does those characters really well and yeah shirley you know you mentioned all the great points about it but definitely watch shirley i think it's a hulu exclusive movie um there's also
2: an interesting part that i just remembered because the two of them like a big part of the story is like um Shirley Jackson is, like, working on the book that will be Hang's Man that she writes. Um, And so she and that student, like, kind of become obsessed with this story of a girl that died on campus. And so it was, like, really interesting also watching a relationship form based on two women loving true crime, which feels like such a real thing and such a real bond that, like, specifically women have a lot of the time that, like, really was awesome in this movie.
0: Cool. So let's jump into our next category. Uh, we did best performance. Now let's move to best director. Uh, Christine, who did you have as your pick for the best director?
3: Oh, don't think this will come to uh, be a surprise to anybody, but Kelly Reichardt. <laughs> <laughs> First cow. woo you know, lover or hater. I think she's one of the most consistently strong directors right now in both like vision and her storytelling abilities, Um, like working within and kind of working kind of without the, like outside of the Hollywood system. Um, She works with a lot of the same people for each movie. And um, I think she just has such a clear vision. Um, And it's a vision that I can get behind every time. So uh, I think it's time she gets her, it's her deserved due. i'll spoiler alert but i'll be talking a little bit more about her movie later
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: christine what if i just like and my pick for best director is also kelly <laughs>
1: i'm tallying just... everything up <laughs> i guess a tough year for me I, there weren't i mean there were a lot of things that i liked this year but um and a lot of things that stood out with their own kind of unique style but um the one that I ultimately settled on is one that is a kind of a revisitation of a more traditional style. Um, I ultimately went with uh, David Fincher for Mank. Um, I think that that movie, um, he's, it was a perfect choice for him in the sense that he's got such an eye for, for tone and for like a consistent sense of atmosphere that permeates each individual movie. He's really good at capturing a mood and really evoking a mood and, um, I think he does so with this uh, pretty brilliantly. It really, it, it like I like I said, it's not it's not so much a representation of that era so much as it transports you there. Um, the way that it is filmed and its cinematography, which I did consider um, up there, was it was definitely really rooted in a lot of not aping of existing shots or like styles from Citizen Kane, but really, uh, really recapturing it without without it being parody or. Uh, or, or, or uh, a carbon copy. So, um, yeah, I guess it, it, again, it was a difficult one for me to pick because e- even with that, I'm just, I'm still kind of you know, second guessing it a little bit. But it's the one that I ultimately settled on. It was like, seems like he did a really good job and really can capture tone very well, obviously throughout a lot of films he's made, and in this one, it really shines. So, uh, I'd give it to interest for uh, *Mank*.
2: Yeah, this one was this one was hard because I again, like, there are just so many great people that I would love to discuss. Um, but I really wanted to spread the love cause I did get to see a decent amount of stuff this year. Um, so for best director, um, one of my favorite movies of the year, the last movie I saw in theater, I picked, um, I might butcher her name, uh, Celine Siama for portrait of a lady on fire. um, Technically, it might be a 2019 movie, but it wasn't released into the Ritz until 2020. Um, But I know a couple of my friends saw it last year. Um, My editor, Ryan, from Cinema 76, I saw him at the film festival after he saw this movie. And I was like, how was it? And he was like, it's so good that I'm mad about it, which is like so true to this movie. Um, It's, you know, it's got everything. It's this beautiful period piece that also has this really amazing love story at it core it looks gorgeous it's like is filmed on like an island in france like everything about it is so beautiful um it's shot like impeccably um just like certain close-up scenes of like the two main characters faces are like really striking at different moments um and yeah there's like again there's this gorgeous love story that made me sob my eyes out at the end of the film um but there's also you know a really interesting core to the film that's based in like greek mythology um and also this like island and community of women that is like portrayed in the film as well um yeah, everything about this is gorgeous. I love this movie. It was my number one until I changed it at the very last second when I posted my list. But uh, yeah, this is definitely one of the best movies. Um, and she is such a talented director. I would really love to see more of her stuff. Um, I know the main actress, uh, when they were at an award ceremony in France, uh, like walked out of the theater when Roman Polanski won like a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I was like, yeah, fuck yeah! These baller women and they're they're an amazing movie—like they should walk out on this piece of shit. Um, so yeah, really, really amazing. How did Sorry. how did you watch it? I saw I
3: think it in like theaters. I'm echoing
2: it was the last one I saw? Oh, in theaters. oh it was the last
3: movie you watched in theaters? Okay,
2: it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on Hulu, um, but I just bought it because there was a Criterion sale uh, and it was fifty percent off. So, uh,
4: my roommates and I—we literally just watched it, and it's still on Hulu. Oh, cool. Um, So, I also had trouble picking Best Director. This was because I I didn't really see anything that was super standout, so I'm kind of cheating a little bit and just going with the movie that I enjoyed the most, which, surprisingly, was The Trial of the Chicago 7, so I'm going to give it to Aaron Sorkin. I. Really am obsessed with this time period of history. You know, it's the DNC in 1968, and um I think that Sorkin did a really good job of meeting the political with the social and doing flashbacks and flash forwards. So I, I, I'll give it to him with the caveat of there's probably more out there that I haven't seen that's better.
2: I didn't realize that was Aaron Sorkin. Me neither. I act, I love Sorkin too. <laughs> <laughs> you, once
0: again, you picked my pick. We picked the same pick as well.
2: Oh, my God.
0: I really loved Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, for, once again, all the reasons you laid out. Um, it feels like, and of course, every movie's done this way, but this one particular felt like that every shot was meticulously planned down to, like, the millisecond of what it was going to look like. Uh, for a movie that could have been kind of, you know, boring, a little artsy-fartsy, really has a huge heart to it. These two women coming together... Um, I love this kind of like communal of witches, lady witches living on this island. Um, and ultimately the real tragedy that is rooted in uh, the tale of Orpheus and Eurydice, which just like I'm a sucker for Greek mythology. Yeah. So that kind of tied in. You're like, why is she showing up like this in certain scenes? And at the end, like I was in tears at the end for you know s- several times um, in this movie. But what got me the most was uh, the long shot like what feels like a forever shot at the very end is, you know, as the closing moments of the movie um, just really got to me when she's in the art gallery at the end, you know, every part of this movie just really uh, hit home for me and I can't, yeah, you know, there's, I can't recommend it more.
3: Connor, I would love to re- to read a review that you write of any, it could be any movie, but the title is just a little too artsy fartsy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, cool, so that was Best Directors. Now we're going to jump into one of my favorite categories that we do: <laughs> is the worst watch of 2020. There were lots of great stuff that we watched on our couches during the quarantine and the pandemic, but there were also some not-so-great stuff. So, Christine, what do you think was kind of, like, the worst watch that you had of 2020?
3: Well, I've, I've watched a lot of shit this year, but I think sort of the shit that rose to the top... Um, was a movie that my friend insisted that we all watch on New Year's Eve when we're supposed to be celebrating the end of this god-awful year only to be brought down with the worst movie ever made, which was 2020's Doolittle.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> and,
3: no! Okay. Um, I, just, I just wrote down in my notes, 100 minutes of clusterfuck CGI animal shit. Helmed by Robert Downey Jr.'s horrific attempt at a Welsh pirate. <laughs> <laughs> His accent is all over. It's just, it's so bad. I would not put want to put anyone through that. The only, <laughs> I think, redeeming thing is I think I heard that the We Hate Movies podcast is going to be reviewing it next month. <laughs> so
1: Probably. I would love to
3: hear what they have to say about this movie.
0: <laughs> I'm so happy you picked that. I totally forgot that movie existed.
3: I would have... It would have never even entered my life. Like, it would have never impacted me if my (laughs) friends weren't a bunch of idiots. (laughs) And I also was wasted, so... (laughs) That probably should have made the movie better, right? (laughs) Like... I don't know. Anyhow.
0: How did you feel about the farting dragon?
3: Like, I was like, there's literally a dragon at the end of this movie? How? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Christine to sell actually harken back to something we talked about once before um the one that really stuck out for me and uh, i saw a lot of stuff this year that was really bad but i went back to go see stuff from older years the only thing that i saw this year though that was really bad enough to catch my attention as a really bad movie was uh the wrong missy
2: oh the netflix movie right
1: yeah, it's uh, yeah, Tyler uh, Spindell at the helm of a uh, a Happy Madison production, which is kind of persona non grata for me. Um, but it, it doesn't even have the charm of their other movies in the sense that, like, at least is populated by like uh, comic comic character actors who can like fill out like a jaunty like and silly performance on the the peripheral of the movie. Like this one was just pretty much uh, what's her name. Um, Lauren Lapkus. Lauren Lapkus. It's pretty much her having to carry the whole thing. Like David Spade has just like the deadest eyes I've ever seen. Like like he forgot that you're supposed to act with your face. Um, Nick Swartzen, if you can stand him, is past his prime in this movie doing nothing. And everyone's just so wooden and like uh, there's so, so little character to anyone but her that I mean she's the strength of the movie if there is one, but otherwise it is insufferable. So I, I'd have to hand it over to that one.
3: Oh, but she carries that movie. I
1: think I I think I only she can. Nothing else happens and everyone else is horrible. Time because I was I was just swept away by her performance. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those performances where like this character is written to be like kind of like uh, it's like whoa, too much, you know? And just like um so like uh Unself-aware and their free spirit in this that like it's it's off-putting or socially awkward but like you got to give me some buffer zone on either side where like there's some other characters that can kind of ease that down like if every character is playing like if every character plays it straight against this then it it becomes automatically annoying instead of like the desired like you know uh charmingly annoying (laughs) so i don't know that was uh that was the dud for me this year
3: (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up because i had forgotten how much I loved
2: that. I feel
0: like we should do a whole episode on that movie.
1: Oh, uh, tr-
2: I could try. <laughs> um, man, so this is hard for me because, like, I. Because I rate for, you know, a movie outlet and I try to give, like, a lot of things they due, I'll just, like, jump on movies that are, like, horror movies that I'm like, I don't know, maybe this will be secretly a gem. And most of them aren't. Um, so I watched a lot of bad movies this year. Um, there was a movie called The Wretched that just did a really terrible job job of like exploring like witches which really pissed me off um that movie spree i saw recently i mentioned um reminded me of knock knock which is one of my least favorite movies ever um but truly and like even there were some that i just like passionately want to discuss what i hate like wonder woman which i didn't actually hate that much it wasn't that bad but there are things about it i really want to like just go all out on, but truly the worst movie I saw this year is a film called Beast Mode Um, that, yeah, it's bad, but the reason I decided I wanted to watch it was because James Hong and Ray Weiss are both in it um and so that's like kind of what hooked me because it's these like older genre actors that i was like yeah of course they're both in it for like five minutes each uh it stars c thomas howell um who hasn't really been in too much stuff but he stars alongside james duvall who plays the bunny and donnie darko which i haven't seen him in anything since. yep I haven't seen him in anything since Donnie Darko. So watching him star in this movie was very weird. Uh, But the premise of the movie is essentially Bowfinger as a horror movie. And shockingly, that didn't work uh, like it should. Uh, So you have like this actor who gets like, who's like kind of a douchebag and they accidentally kill him. So they find a janitor that looks like him. And then there's also like, This cream that they're all using for makeup effects that turns people into monsters who start eating people in Hollywood. There's, like, elements of it that, like, could have been fun and campy, but really it just fell, like, totally flat. It was for sure the worst movie I saw this year. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was just really bad. There's also a lot of, like, poop and fart jokes in it, which I'm, like... Man, this was so obviously written by just, like, a shitty dude, you know? <laughs> like, it was really unfortunate, especially since there were some, like, decent actors in this film.
0: What a dumb title. Be- what is it? Um, Beast? Horror Beast? Beast
3: Mode. Beast Mode.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's really, really bad.
3: That sounds like a Red Bull horror story.
2: I like, <laughs> like I sat down to write my review for it and I was like looking at Garrett and I'm like, I don't even know what to write. Like this was so bad. And my editor was like, Hey, you can either not write about it when you saw my first draft, or he's like, or you can just be meaner. And I was like, okay, I'll just be mean. <laughs> <laughs> Because I always want to give filmmakers the benefit of the doubt and kind of go in with like, oh, it was like a good first try. You'll get it next time. And like, this was not that at
4: all. On another disappointing and um, the worst movie that I saw this year starred Tom Hanks, sadly, and it's Greyhound. So uh, Greyhound was meant to come out in theaters, but instead went to Apple TV. And... um, It's a World War II movie, and I think that when you make a war movie, I love war movies, when you make a war movie, you need to have a purpose. This movie had no purpose. Um, It wasn't a story I needed. Uh, I don't think that it was a story that needed to be told. It was just average white people doing average white people things. Um, You know, obviously they're in a war and they're doing like... um, important stuff but it none of it really felt extraordinary that I needed to know about it minkus from boy meets world is in it and it is so funny it's his it's been like more than a decade since really like boy meets world was on or I really watched it but I'm always like is that minkus so it's it really took me out of the movie
3: if that's the standout moment of a movie (laughs) I, I,
1: I, I make heard
4: of this. It's, it's not good. I had to restart it three times because I got so bored and I was like, no, I'm going to finish this movie. The whole premise is that um, Tom Hanks is a captain of a ship and he is a freight of water. Basically <laughs> it's like that choice, man. It serves no purpose. It's all about like fighting um, the German subs, Whatever. Whatever, I didn't need it.
0: think it's this is Tom Hanks' first movie that he wrote, right? Oh. oh. Yeah, he was the, yeah, he's the sole screenplay credit.
2: Huh. <sighs> well. He
1: shouldn't be writing. Well, he I, had a
2: rough year.
3: Dads love this movie.
2: That's he,
4: he did have a rough year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it came out like right after. Um, I th- I don't. I think he had hosted SNL from his home. <laughs> Oh no. Mm. And I was like, he's got that
3: other movie coming out, right? Like a Western? Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: I get a lot of his movies confused. I just realized. You said he was a captain. And I was like, Captain Phillips? Sully? Like, (laughs) he's in too many movies. He's in too many movies. I think that's the problem.
3: Yeah. He needs to start thinking about his legacy. Like, he needs to start saying no to projects so he, you know, ends his career on a high note.
2: We were listening to the show Blank Check, and they were doing Robert Zemeckis movies. And so we were listening to the one where they were talking about Polar Express, which is just so funny to listen to. But like the whole original concept for that movie was that Tom Hanks was going to play like everybody. And he still plays a lot of characters, but he was supposed to play like every person in that movie.
1: It's like instead of being John Malkovich, it's just being John Hanks.
2: Oh man, so bad.
3: <laughs> uh, I speaking of Robert Zemeckis, I laughed so hard, and I'm thinking of it. <laughs> yeah, it's directed by
1: Robert. Oh, that's a great in joke, which isn't meant to be a jab. He says it's a whole thing, but like, it's really funny.
0: So for my worst watch, I was between two movies, but I ultimately went with the one that was the last theatrical experience that I had, and that was Downhill. Um, the Will Ferrell oh, no. make of Force Majeure, which Christine said is a wonderful classic French film. Uh, but this was absolutely, utterly disappointing. I was going through the list with uh, my fiance, Alyssa, today, and she described it as that's the movie that a um, like marriage counselor would tell, like, you need to have a date night, you need to go out more. The couple then sees that movie and then decides they need to divorce and like mm-hmm. actually um, it is totally flat. I think it does a really terrible job of representing what like marital struggles are like and how like kids are used in like marital fights. It's just like a totally surface level film that ends super abruptly and totally unsatisfyingly. And like Will Ferrell, you know, I know Sam, you hate him. Um, but he doesn't do any of his like funny sticks. Like I would at least appreciate it if it was like a Will Ferrell movie that had some like, enjoyment level, level out of it, but he's totally flat. Julia Louis-Dreyfus tries to do, like, something, but ultimately gets really terrible direction. Um, the whole movie is just downright terrible, and it sucks that that was the last movie I've seen in theaters, and that it couldn't be Invisible Man, because that movie was a really cool one to see in theaters. That's why we I don't
2: know why... There's something particularly terrible about, like, when American filmmakers decide to remake French movies... That just <laughs> never works out well for them, you know?
0: Imagine what portrait of a movie looks like if it's made by I don't know, someone.
2: There's a movie I really liked called Starbuck. that's a French movie. And then they remade it with Vince Vaughn and they called it Delivery Man. It's the movie where he has like a thousand kids, which they make into a slapstick comedy where in the French version, like, meaningful and nice, and then I was like, really? You're going to make this a Vince Vaughn movie? Okay.
3: <laughs> I think it's a Swedish movie, not a French movie. But, oh, it's, dark. but I think there are parts of it that are in French. But American remakes across the board just suck.
1: <laughs> yeah, that old boy remake, good lord.
2: Oh, I forgot that they did that.
1: Yeah, that was a mistake. You're better off forgetting it. <laughs> I think that brings us then to our final
0: category, number eight, the best picks of the year, our best watch, our favorite thing that we've seen this year. And Christine, why don't you kick us off?
3: All right. I'll uh, I'll I'll be quick. Um, oh, my pick is Move. first cow, <laughs> ride surprise. Um, <laughs> I've heard it's wonderful. <laughs> well, so like I, I found a, another quote from a review that I really liked uh, by Adam Nayman who... Um, Dave had showed us a book that he'd written and I love his articles.
1: Oh, the Anderson book. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So he's a great writer. Um, and I think he sort of encapsulated, uh, some nice thoughts about the, the movie. So the movie opens with this quote, uh, the bird, a nest, the spider, a web, man, friendship. And that's the opening title card and Naaman writes, um, that's a William Blake quote that leads Jonathan Raymond's 2004 source novel, The Half-Life, and also is the opening for guard's um, movie. And Blake's thesis is that solidarity is a naturally occurring phenomenon from which human beings make their home. As a movie that posits genuine self-sacrificing friendship as the apex of humanity, as well as a survival technique in a world ruled by doggy dog impulses, um, Oop, that wasn't a complete quote. I must have deleted the rest of the quote. He essentially says that it's it's a genuine movie. Um, and I, I love his focus on the sort of message of partnership, friendship, and solidarity in stark contrast with the individualism of capitalism and brought on by sort of this first cow brought to what's now, uh, what's now Oregon, uh, in the 1820s. And so I think card just beautifully presents this tension between the two characters, um, King Lou and this, uh, character named Cookie and their bond, their friendship, um, and how sort of they get wrapped up in, in sort of the competitive system brought about by the, by this cow, uh, providing this scarce commodity of milk. Um, every night they try to steal the one cow that's in this, this small town and take its milk to make hotcakes. Um, and, and they end ultimately, and this is not a spoiler because you see this sh- opening shot, uh, they ultimately sort of pay with their lives, essentially getting caught up in this competitive, capitalist system, even though what brings them together is partnership and solidarity. And I think the movie just so beautifully um, presents that. And um, yeah, uh, it's, it's great. It's a recommendation. I like, I think I mentioned this before that I, when I think of this movie, it reminds me a lot of the themes in there will be blood uh, that centers this like oil as sort of like the, this fulcrum of greed and capitalism in this period, this mid eighteen hundreds period. Although First Cow is kind of earlier, um, but whereas I think that movie solely focuses on sort of like the the pitfalls of individual individualism and its relationship to money and power and uh, capitalism. I think this First Cow shows that even characters and people that like that bond try to form partnerships um, get kind of, and get swept up into the system of competition and capitalism, um, but yeah, they get brought down by business in the system. And the cow is just so beautiful, as I've already talked about. But yeah, that's best picture for me.
1: You know, it's a lot of thoughtful things that you've uh, you kind of brought to the fore with that, that I'd like, having seen it once, it's a movie that I immediately was like, I'm definitely gonna need to see this a few more times.
3: I I will admit this is a quick side note that there were some criticisms that I've heard about the costuming and upon rewatch, I will allow that. I will actually allow conversation to be had about the particular costumes. I can understand the critique that some of the costumes make it feel um, like some peripheral characters are representative as, as opposed to being given like, like, there's, I won't go into it, but I'll give, I'll give, I'll allow that, uh, <laughs> that critique.
1: <laughs> nice. Uh, I guess that teases me up and, um, you know, going with again, an unconventional choice for me for this year, uh, a lot of movies that I'd liked, a lot of movies that, uh, I thought were fine, but one that really, uh, one series actually television series that still stood out for me as a kind of the top contender for the world I found myself most immersed in and most interested in uh, and his presentation uh, would go uh, once again to uh, Doro Hidoro a fantastic as as I, as I mentioned before when describing um, his screenwriting uh, it's just sort of like a fantastic world building experience uh, that introduces you to a world that is the likes of which I'm not familiar with and is really you know pretty unique and pretty standout-ish um, but all of it really ultimately rooted in paired characters and their their dynamics and the bonds that they share and the bonds they develop as characters. Um, there is, a, uh, is Kaiman, our protagonist, who, again, mysteriously has a lizard head and has to figure out why, with the help of his good friend Nikaido, um, who uh, may or may not be involved with magic as well. Um, there are the the people that are paired in the magic world because of something called the Blue Knight, where you basically assigned a partner, um, almost like a buddy system for when they enter the the whole or the real world um, and how important that character bond is and that's explored through the characters of Fujita and Ebisu and Ebisu might be one of my favorite fictional characters of all time as of uh, as of the show rolling out um, and just across the board if you're gonna watch it uh, the voice acting is vastly superior if you listen to the original japanese dub i would say dub over dub every time with this series i've tried the uh the dub version the u.s dub version the netflix one and it really does not hold a candle to how well the characters are captured and expressed um, in the original japanese uh, performances so absolutely go back and check it out uh, via the sub version rather than the dub if you're going to look into it uh, I was just spellbound by it and, and found it such an uplifting thing in such a dark time because it is so much about friendship and about the bonds that not only make up relationships, but also make up who well-written characters are. So um, definitely go have a look. It's on Netflix.
0: You've picking a TV show as the best pick.
2: I know.
1: It it tore me to shreds, but it, it earned it.
2: Um, so yeah, my my pick changed right before i had to hand in my like top movies of the year for cinema 76 i like woke up at 2 a.m and i was like oh this is my favorite movie of the year um and so ultimately i ended up going with uh brandon cronenberg's possessor um so brandon cronenberg the son of david cronenberg this is his second film the first one he did was antiviral um possessor stars andrea riseborough um who was in death of Stalin that we saw recently she was in Mandy she's so good and she's so different in everything I see her in which I really love about her um but yeah you know it is this like sci-fi film that also has lots of body horror very much like his father Uh, but what really sticks out about Possessor is that um, it's much more pointed than a David Cronenberg film is, where Cron- David Cronenberg usually has just general anxieties about the world and the government and corporations. This is very pointed. Um, the organization that Andrea Risborough is working for is like trying to help basically topple this company. And the person that runs it is Sean Bean, who essentially plays like a Jeff Bezos type character. So it's very much a critique on these Giant corporations and capitalism and how it has formed the world. Um the there's a scene in particular where one of the main characters, Christopher Abbott, who is fantastic in this movie, um, is going to work at Sean Bean's company. And his job is just to sit there at a computer and like spy on people. Um, so that way they can see what kind of curtains they have, what kind of tables they have, also they're like data mining um so you see the scene where he's like s- like looking through a computer and like staring and seeing what other people are doing in their homes and there's this like couple that's just like fucking and he's just like zooming into the curtains to see like what they're doing um so there's so much like interesting um aspects of this film um andrea riseborough's character is like going through this whole crisis of not really knowing who she is or even wanting to be in her body anymore and feeling much more comfortable when she possesses other people's bodies in this film, um, which is such an interesting concept. And she's so good at playing this character. That's very uncomfortable in her own skin. Um, The music for this film is also really fantastic. Um, The composer is Jim Williams who did uh, the music for things like raw, as well as doing a lot of, um, Uh, Ben Wheatley's films, like Kill List and A Field in England, uh, which are all really great too. Um, The other part of uh, Possessor that really gets to me personally is uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh's really amazing in it. Um, I feel like she's always just an awesome presence in genre movies, especially lately. Um, But she and Andrea Riseborough's character have this kind of abusive boss co-worker relationship that's very like emotionally abusive which um really resonated with me in many ways uh with like emotional manipulation um of this particular character um so yeah there's there's so many interesting aspects to this film and upon rewatch it really only gets better um watch the uncut version um it's only a couple minutes longer i think it literally just cuts out a couple minutes of gore uh but i think that gore is also like pretty important to like the central thesis of the story so definitely um go into and watch that
3: on any streaming um
2: i don't think it currently is um garrett and i bought it on blu-ray because we loved it so much um Actually, you might be able to rent it on, like, Amazon or something, but I don't think it's, like, fully available for streaming
1: yet. Yeah, it looks like you can rent it on Amazon. but Yeah.
4: Um, so my pick for best movie, this is – it's a little different. So I picked this movie because of how I watched it, and this is a movie that we've talked about quite a bit tonight. Um, I picked Invisible Man, Um. I watched this with my roommates at the very beginning of quarantine, and I remember everything feeling so um, so uncertain, but almost in, in a fun, unknown way, and just enjoying spending two weeks at home with my friends, um, the people who I was living with, and the the four of us together we just watched invisible man and you know tori you mentioned how stressful that first scene is I like my butt was clenched the whole time and we were all reacting to every single scene and it's just like i look fondly back at those moments um there's not many good things that i can take from 2020 but at you have to find the crumbs of happiness and and that is one
0: it's Invisible Man is so good. I can't wait so for good. the larger dark universe they're gonna build from Invisible Man.
2: Yeah. It's crazy that I think that's only Lee Wen L's second direct like film that he directed, which is crazy to me. That movie looks so good.
1: Who's the other one?
2: Uh he did um upgrade.
1: That's right. Okay.
2: Which I, I also really enjoyed. But man, there's like such a big difference between those movies. Yeah.
0: So for my pick for Best Watch, uh, this is a movie that I've watched a few times now. I think I've talked on the podcast quite a bit. It is Blow the Man Down, uh, a prime movie that came out in March. Um, this movie really, for me, could have also fit in almost any category that we've talked about today. This movie is Fire on All Cylinders, uh, written and directed by Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Curdie. Um, follows these two sisters who live in Maine. Um, who, you know, there's elements of true crime, generational trauma, community trauma, uh, badass grandmothers who are like really in charge of the community. Um, the performances, the writing, the dialogue, the music, um, it has this like cool element of like these sea shanty Greek chorus people, um, who like sing the song, blow the man down and other songs like throughout the movie. Um. I don't want to give away too much for spoilers, uh, but this is a prime movie, so it's available on Amazon Prime whenever you want to watch it. Um, the epitome of what I think is like a cold movie, because it's like winter in Maine, a funeral. Um, it just hits a lot of the notes that I'm a real sucker for. Uh, so Blow the Man Down, definitely my favorite movie of the year, one that I typically watch every couple of months rewatch. There's always just so much more to dive into with that film.
2: It's got a real Cohen brothers feel to it, which is pretty fun.
0: Yeah, the way that like uh, violence and comedy like intersected. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Of cool. Yeah. Um, so that is all of our eight categories. Uh, Dave, I know you were keeping track of the nominations. So as we've done in the past two episodes, you want to give us a rundown on kind of what we've been sharing out.
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, we've been keeping tabs on um, on our nominations and uh, trying to kind of like tally up ones that have more than uh, more than just one suggestion. Although that being said, I think uh, it's interesting that this year because. You know, it's been so hectic, we've been so scattered, and it's been so new for all of us. We've all kind of been away from each other in a sense, but we've all had an opportunity to like explore different things and and bring them all to the table. So I think we covered a lot of ground today, which is really cool. Uh, Maybe more so than we've done in previous years, actually, I think. Probably because we haven't been experiencing films together in a physical sense. Uh, But it has allowed for a broader conversation, which is really cool. Among those, ones that were brought up more than once, Um, would include uh, two mentions of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, two mentions of First Cow, two mentions of Shirley, two mentions of Soul, two mentions of Doro Hidoro, and two mentions of The Mandalorian. Uh, Now, there are two uh, that actually got three, um, and those three mentions went uh, in part to First I'm Thinking of Ending Things and also Invisible Man. So those are uh, the most uh, most spoken of movies, not including our worst category uh, recommendations for the year.
0: I think The Lighthouse last year won it, right? With like five mentions or something like that?
1: It was up there, I believe, yeah.
2: Sounds right.
1: Which I stand by.
0: <laughs> um, as we're wrapping up, does anybody have any final shout outs? Because I know I have a few. Um, so does anybody have any picks that maybe just missed the cut, or things that have really been comforting them that don't, you know, aren't being nominated? Anybody kind of have any thoughts there? Because I know for me uh, personally, Criminal Minds has been a real um, source of joy in my life in the past couple months. Seasons one <laughs> through twelve are on Netflix. Um, Alyssa and I basically watched seasons three through twelve within the span of just a couple of weeks. Um, then I went back and watched uh, season one with Mandy Patinkin, who's one of my favorite actors and Broadway performers, who's really good in Homeland. He actually left Criminal Minds because he didn't like the like network work and then just did Homeland, which is kind of similar to Criminal Minds. Uh, and now seasons 13, 14, and 15 are on Hulu. Um, so I even think I hear Alyssa watching that right now in the other room. Uh, so Criminal Minds has to get a shout out. And season 13 is the best yet.
1: I always thought wow. an interesting article might be, is it dialogue from Criminal Minds or are they cannibal corpse lyrics? <laughs>
0: oh my god that's amazing
2: um i have a couple that i want to shout out just general movies that i really enjoyed this year that i didn't get to to mention um the rental i really enjoyed quite a bit um as well as the wolf of snow hollow um were both like really amazing horror movies um the score for gretel and hansel is really good it was like gonna be my pick um it's by rob rob all caps um it's, like, one of the most haunting things I've ever heard. I listen to it all the time. It's, like, now my creepy, like, Halloween music that I play. Um, and then also, um, I Garrett and I watched Palm Springs when it first came out on Hulu. And that was, like, such a fun, like, goofy comedy. And I think Andy Samberg has really gotten through, us through a lot of, like, shit this year. Just because he's so funny. And we watched, watched a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, but... Man, yeah, that movie, like, really helped us get through, like, our first quarantine lull. Uh, So, really enjoyed that. I loved it. Uh, it in Palm Springs. Yeah, so fun. So, I'll,
3: kind of going off of that note, um, so uh, one of my, the runners-up that I had for best performance was actually Kristen Milioti from oh. Palm Springs. I thought that was a breakout performance. I, like, I know yeah. she's been in other stuff, but I, I had never seen her any, in any other th- Things, TV shows, but I thought she was amazing. Like as a comedian, as like a performer, she was great. Um, so I'm excited to see more stuff from her.
4: This was not going to make any of my categories, but I think that it's a fun movie. Anola um, Holmes, I really enjoyed watching that. I think Billy Bobby Brown did a, a great job, and. Um, Tom, who was a guest on this podcast once before, informed me that the family of, um, what's it, Arthur
2: Conan Doyle, Doyle. yeah,
4: um, is like suing Netflix because they made Sherlock Holmes too nice.
2: (laughs) Wow.
0: Yeah, the nice Holmes is is still copyrighted, is not in the public domain yet, apparently, which is weird.
4: But he was played by Henry Cavill and I was just like, oh, so good.
0: The scene when he goes to the tea shop and the woman who runs the like kickboxing class is like, well, you can say you don't care about politics because it like doesn't affect you. Like that was such my like, favorite scene in the whole movie.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And also a lot of like kid violence in like a like a intense way, which like I feel like you don't see a lot. Yeah. Like she almost killed multiple times.
4: Yeah. Like, and, the, and the boy.
0: Yeah. I I do have to give this movie a shout out. Um, My Spy, starring Dave Batista. I talked about it before the long running list of uh, buff bald wrestlers who have to take care of little kids, Uh, that genre of movie. I thought My Spy was delightful. It has like a two star rating on Letterboxd, but I don't care. I gave it like four stars. Um, This movie knew how to be silly, knew how to be funny, knew how to be heartwarming. And if you're just in the mood for like just a silly kind of like kid movie, I think My Spy is a great pick.
3: I'm thinking about Dave Batista too, because I rewatched Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. I oh just love it just as that. much, That's if great. not more than the first time, but I was like, his performance is so good. Yeah. And I had watched another movie with him right before I rewatched 2049, and now I can't remember. And he was equally as good. Oh, it was Guardians of the
1: Galaxy. Did you say Guardians? Yeah, that was my guess.
3: Right. <laughs> The big one. <laughs> he's so, yeah, he's like on my to watch list to like keep an eye out for more projects that he does.
1: Yeah, I'll just add briefly that um, <clears throat> it's already pretty well represented via my my nominations. But please watch Doro on Netflix because uh, it's a little bit tenuous as to whether or not a second season is going to be approved. And it's an incomplete story the way that it ends. So please, please watch it. Pump that pump those numbers up. Let's get a second season of that show. Well, thank you could so I much in, for stopping by. Oh, go ahead, could Christine. I,
3: could I just throw in one more yeah. uh runner up? Um I want to give the expanse a huge shout out. Um, season five is so good. And I don't know if anyone has any interest in watching it and starting from the beginning because watching the expanse blossom as it has uh has been Awesome. It started out as a middling sci-fi show and has transformed mixed feelings about through funneling uh, Amazon funneling mon- money into it. And it makes me depressed to think that's the way a show can blossom. But it has. It's so good. And I want to give Dominic Tipper, uh, who's one of the leads, a big shout out um, for also her transformation as a character and her performance just keeps getting better through all five seasons. So that's my- You read
2: the books, Christine? I haven't. Okay. (laughs) Nor
3: do I have any intention. (laughs) I I
2: have the first one, which is why I asked. And they're huge. like.
3: So they're bricks. Like at this point, I already know what happens. So
0: well, thank you so much. Our uh, valued listeners for coming to our award show. Uh, here in our picks. Uh, be sure to let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what your favorite movies of 2019 were. Be sure to let us know if you watched The Greyhound and uh, how you feel about Tom Hanks.
2: 2020.
0: <laughs> I gotta know. I want to know. Uh, and just let us know what else you've been watching. Um, we got some exciting things coming up in 2021 for you. Uh, and so we can't wait to have you with us. Thanks for sticking with us uh, through 99 episodes. This is episode 99. Ooh. Um they're so coming up on number one hundred, which is um incredible. So thank you so Triple much digits. for doing this on the way. We hope you really enjoy our award shows because I really enjoyed talking about some of my favorite and my least favorite movie um with y'all. Is there stuff that we want to plug before we're heading out? Anybody feel you know, they want to plug anything?
2: Tori? Um so yeah, I couple pieces up at cinema seventy-six, my um favorite discoveries of the year my promising young woman review as well as my favorite um films of 2020 and then um i just started writing for movie john and my first review is up there um, for shadow in the cloud uh which is a really weird genre world war ii movie that's pretty fun um so definitely check that out and uh yeah i'll have some some exciting uh, stuff to announce like sooner rather than later. So, cool.
0: Well, we hope you have the rest of your 2021. It's gotten off to an interesting start. <laughs> um, but hopefully things will be all uphill um, for this year. And be sure to keep listening. Let us know what you're watching, what you're really liking or not liking. Uh, we can't wait to share what we're going to be watching for the rest of 2021 with y'all. Have a great day, everybody.
4: Bye.
2: Thank you.